morning by offering a word of prayer on behalf of the Miles family. This is their last uh, Sunday here, and so we just want to hand this transition into God's hands. And uh, so would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, we do thank you for um, the blessing that we've had in having the, these years of, of times of praise and worship and study and fellowship with uh, the Miles family. And Father, we want to hand this entire process over to you. We know that you have seen this process from its beginning and through to its completion. And yet in the midst of it, we walk through it as we experience what you already know. Uh, I pray, Father, for a, a smooth transition. Uh, I pray for transitions for the children as they uh, incorporate into to, to new schools, uh, as they build and develop new friendships. I uh, pray that, that you would be with them through that. I uh, pray for Aaron and for Katie in uh, work transitions and, and jobs and, and parenting in a new city and um, relationships with, with family. Uh, Father, we just ask that you uh, bless them abundantly, uh, bless them richly, that this would be uh, just a wonderful experience for them. And we pray that as they go, that they know they go with our love and with your love that far exceeds ours. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife sometimes jokes that I don't catch subtle cues, but I'm here by myself and I figured out I need to start wearing a face guard and maybe people would feel comfortable sitting a little more closer to the front. I don't know if people are just worried I'm going to spit on them or something, but um, I'll see what I can arrange by next Sunday, maybe make it a little safer to sit up closer to, uh, to the front. Um, Tom Stucker is a guy who loves United Airlines, and United Airlines loves him. Uh, he has flown in his lifetime nearly 22 million miles. That's like flying around the world more than 835 times. And because he flies so much, he's a part of an ultra-exclusive, rarely known little VIP club that United Airlines has. When he arrives at the airport, he always has a designated spot. He will be greeted by name there with his boarding passes handed to him. There's somebody who will take his bags right out of his car. He doesn't deal with them. He goes into the airport, and they lead him to an unmarked door. He goes through that door, and he's at the very front of the line at TSA. He will be escorted through the TSA pre-check, and then he will be taken to a United lounge. Not like the lounges that you see, but lounges that have unmarked doors that these exclusive folks go into these lounges where they can eat and drink whatever they want. Every single flight that he boards on United Airlines, he is greeted by name, and he is given this, this royal treatment. If there's ever a flight that he is on that is delayed, they will hold his connecting flight. They will meet him on the tarmac in a car, and they will whisk him over to his connecting flight. When you fly 22 million airline, miles with an airline, they're going to treat you nice. So Tom says of this experience, that it is an experience in which he is treated like the President of the United States. He says he is treated like royalty, he is treated like a king. Now, when you fly 22 million miles with an airline, that means you don't get to spend a lot of time at home. And Tom says, my favorite place to be is at home. But he also confesses that going home is always a transition and an adjustment for him. He goes from being King Tom to, hey Tom, would you take the garbage out? Hey Tom, the refrigerator's broken. And he says it's an adjustment for him being in a world where everything is oriented around him to a world in which people are asking things of him. 
And while we've never had that kind of treatment, I'm guessing, on United Airlines or any airline for that matter, we can probably relate to the fact that we as Christians live in two very different worlds. The one world that we live in is a world that is kind of powered by this production machinery that that is so anxious and so willing to ask the question, what do you need? What can I do to make your life easier? What can I do to make your life better? And when they come up with the answer, they will make a product. And that product will be geared around us and catered to us. It's the kind of a world where we value comfort and success and just a little bit more. And yet we also live as Christians in a world where we know there is no greater joy than submitting ourselves to the will and to the purposes of God. It is a world where we realize we are not the center, we are not the focus of things, that the world does not revolve around us. It's a world that values self-control and contentment and service. It's a world that Jesus describes saying it in this way, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow me. So this morning, I want us to just begin to explore what it's like living in these two worlds, asking ourselves which of these worlds is really dominating how I think and how I live. Both of these worlds have their, a natural gravitational pull. It's like the people movers at the airport. When you're standing on them, you're actually moving somewhere. And both of these worlds are trying to pull us deeper into something. Do we live with kingdom values? Or have we intentionally bought into the idea that we really are the center of all things? So I want to start by describing this world that puts the self in the center. Between 1908 and 1927, the best-selling automobile was the Ford Model T. Great-great-grandpa Henry created those things, in case you're wondering why I'm so wealthy. That answers the question, doesn't it? But during that time, between 1914 and 1925, the Model T only came in the color black. If you've ever heard Henry Ford's famous quote, he says uh, to the customer, you can have any color you like as long as it's black. Henry Ford, as a business owner, did believe that owners should pay close attention to customers' complaints and suggestions. But he had a disagreement with his sales force in terms of which kinds of complaints and suggestions they ought to pay attention to. And Henry Ford said, we are not going to listen to the personal whims of the customer. And color, he said, was a personal whim of the customer. They thought it was important, but it really isn't important. And that seemed to work well for a time until another manufacturer, General Motors, said, hey, we will give them whatever they want. Their personal whims will become our wish and command. And eventually, Henry Ford had to kind of catch up with the times. Henry Ford made a mistake. He did not realize that as a business owner, he needed to have an absolute respect for the consumer's wishes and the consumer's tastes. And there has not been since there very rarely a successful business that has not catered to every single wish and whim of the consumer. As Francis Schaeffer says, we live in a world, uh, we are surrounded in a world that says no to nothing. We live in a world that worships the trinity of my wants, my needs, and my desires. We have become the center, and there is an entire production and economic machine out there that is willing to give us whatever we want. So we say, what do I want? What would make life easier for me? What can we do for you? 
And there's a writer named Rodney Clapp, and he suggests as we're looking at this world, there's two kind of guiding questions that are helpful for us. First, what kind of a person does this culture want us to be? As you, as you look at what it takes to run this, this production machine, what kinds of people do they need us to be? It's a person who has needs. It's a person who wants to satisfy those needs. It's a person who has desires and a person who is willing to spend money in order to get all of those things. And then what are the key traits of the consumer par excellence? So who is the hero? Who is the person that, that this production machine most loves? It's a person who is always discontent, who is always shopping, who is always looking for the next thing. It is a person who always desires more. And that's the one world that we live in. But we as Christians know we live in this other world, a world where Christ is the center. And so we're going to take a minute now and describe what that world looks like. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Places carry a significant meaning as you look at gospel stories. I think all of us realize in our lives certain places have great memories. When we think about that place, when we're in that place, it brings back good memories. It might be a place like Yellowstone Bible Camp. It might be a place like your home growing up. It might be a favorite vacation destination. But we all also have those places that whenever we are there, they bring troubling memories, like Chuck E. Cheese, or U.S. border crossings, or the Los Angeles airport. All of these are settings and places that have this own characteristic to them. And Jerusalem in the Gospels is always this ominous place. It is a place where Jesus is despised and rejected. So when we hear Jerusalem, we need to begin to hear that, that kind of ominous music that is playing in the background. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem he would be crucified. Jesus knows what is ahead. And yet, like a lamb who is led to the slaughter, he sets his face to go towards Jerusalem. But the problem is with those who follow Jesus, they want nothing to do with this life of rejection. So just prior in, in Luke 19, 53, we, we, we find out that they, they're entering into Samaria and the people in Samaria did not receive Jesus. And so it is his disciples who come up with this idea. They say, hey, let's, let's call down fire and let's have these guys all completely wiped out. In this world in which the self is the center, when you're not treated right, when, when, when people don't do what you want them to do, the natural solution is to say, what would make me feel better? And if lightning would strike them and they would all burn, man, that would make me feel better. And that's what they ask of Jesus. They implore Jesus to give them permission to just wipe them out because they'll feel better. Because they want to be self in the center. But Jesus, we are told, turned and rebuked them. He rebuked this way of evaluating a life where we live in the center. And so in Luke 9.51, 9.57 then, we're, we're told that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And we need to remember when he's going on the road, where is he going to? He is on the road to Jerusalem. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. And of course, the central issue here is discipleship. And discipleship seems to be revolving in, in this text around two key verbs, follow and go. 
And to follow Jesus means, it doesn't just simply mean following Him as in walking behind Him. Following Jesus means being willing to go to the places that He sends us. In fact, in the text just before this in Samaria 9.52, He sent messengers ahead of Him. In the text just after this, He has chosen His 70 and He sends them ahead of Him. To follow Jesus doesn't simply mean to go behind Him, but it also means to be willing to go to the very places that He sends. And so in this first interaction with Jesus, somebody is willing to be obedient to both of those key verbs. They're willing to follow, and they're willing to go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Each time Jesus responds, he's going to respond with the cost. Because Jesus recognizes that there is a cost associated with following him. And in this context, the cost is that of rejection. To follow Jesus means that we need to be prepared for rejection. It is the foxes and it is the birds who can claim a place in the world where it is mine. My hole. My nest. But Jesus, who we know is the one, the earth is the Lord's and everything therein, but it is Jesus himself who cannot claim a territory and say, this is mine. He is a foreigner everywhere he goes and he does not have a home to be in. Jesus is used to rejection. He was just rejected in Samaria. He will be rejected in his own hometown. He will be rejected in the temple. He will be rejected in Jerusalem. Jesus' life is one of rejection. And those who follow must be willing to be rejected also. So then to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So now what we have is Jesus initiating a discussion. And in this call to discipleship, there is this attention that the call is to follow. But remember, if we're going to follow Jesus, we also need to be willing to do what? We need to be willing to go. And in this case, the person says, I'm going to follow, but I want to dictate where I go. And where he wants to go is he wants to go and he wants to bury his father. Likely what is not happening is that his father has died. If his father's dead, he would be at the funeral. But what he is saying is he's saying, I'm going to go home. I'm going to take care of dad until he dies. Once I have buried dad, then at that point, I will go where you want me to go. But Jesus said to him, let the bed dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see where he wants to go? And then Jesus wants him to go elsewhere, to go and to be a person who proclaims the kingdom of God. There is a cost associated. The cost in this case involves reorienting family obligations and family priorities. And then there's a third. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. It's likely what this person is asking for is for his family's blessing. He he wants to go home. He wants to say, here's what I intend to do. And he wants to hear them say, God bless you, go with God. And with that blessing, he will go back to Jesus and follow him. And yet we recognize also that he puts his following in the future tense. There's some things I need to fix. There's some things I need to take care of. Once that's all organized, then I will follow you. But we recognize that discipleship of Jesus is a present tense activity. It's not a future tense thing. It's not something where I say, tomorrow I will follow. It's something that belongs in this very moment, in this very day. And so for that reason, Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom 
of God. The man says, in the future, in the future I'm going to follow. And Jesus says, future is important. In fact, past is unimportant. And so when you follow Jesus, what it means is to look forward to him, to move past all of these things. And the cost then is whatever you valued in the past needs to become something that belongs in the past as you look forward to Jesus. And so Jesus is introducing us to a very different world, a world where the self is not in the center, but where Christ himself, where God is at the center. So I want to look at these two guiding questions now in reference to Jesus. What kind of a person does Jesus want us to be? And what are the key traits of the disciple par excellence? Who gets to be the hero? It is the one who understands there is a cost, a personal cost to follow Jesus. It is the person who is willing to follow. It is the person who is willing to go regardless of their own wants, regardless of their own needs, regardless of their own desires. They look to Jesus for direction. They're not selfish. They're submissive. And they surrender themselves to Christ. There's a guy named Kenneth Bailey who taught the Bible for 40 years in the Middle East. And he was telling the story about once teaching this text to some seminarians. So these are people who are getting ready to go into ministry. And as he was explaining exactly what Jesus was calling, he said he realized at one point he finally communicated well because he looked up and everyone there was white and ashen in their faces because they just realized how much Jesus was calling them to sacrifice. This is a kind of a text that when we understand it, we turn white with the realization that Jesus is calling us into a very different world. See, when Luke tells us about these would-be disciples, he does it in a very open-ended way. Matthew is much more specific. Matthew mentions that there is a scribe who comes, and he talks about another disciple. Luke's language is general. Someone, another, another. And in each of these three cases, we don't know the end result. See, if we're really listening to what's happening, we want to be knowing what happened with them. And I think if we went to Luke and we said, what happened with these three guys? Did they do it? Luke's going to look at you and he's going to wink and he's going to say, I don't know. Will you? Because this is not a story about these three men and the choices they make. It is a story about all of us. About what world we're going to live into. About what kind of a life we're going to live. Because we do live in these two worlds. And these two worlds are opposites. These are two worlds in which they cannot coexist together. These two worlds, I think, are best understood like uh, the fish in an aquarium. We tried to put together an aquarium a few years ago, and I didn't know that there were certain fish that don't get along with other fish. And I also didn't know that there are certain fish that are called territorial fish that don't get along with any fish. And the kingdom of God is a territorial fish. You're not going to say we're going to put the kingdom of God here and we're going to put this consumeristic self here and these two things are going to get along. One will dominate the other. One will rule and dictate how we live. And the question becomes, which of these two worlds am I going to submit to? Far too often it seems like the consumeristic self, the self in the center, it seeps into the kingdom of God. I think about how we talk about prayer sometimes. Somebody said, in America, prayer is just like going to the movie theater. You ever been to the movie theater and started watching a movie, and you're like, I don't care for this movie. I don't like this movie. I have no interest in this movie, and what do you do? You get up and leave, because you're at the center. You paid the money for admission. If you don't like it, you have the right to leave. 
And the concern is, and the question is, do we view prayer in that way where prayer is for me and about me? See, often when we talk about why we pray, we often talk about it in a very self-referential way. I pray because it makes me feel great. I pray because it's a wonderful way to start my day. As if we're consumers looking on the shelf saying, oh, this looks good. I'm going to buy this because it helps me out. And the question becomes, what happens when prayer is not that way? All of us will experience seasons and times in prayer when it seems lifeless and dry and pointless. When it is about God, we continue in prayer regardless of our experiences. And I hope prayer is a rich blessing for you. I hope you experience the richness of God's nearness and presence in prayer. But prayer is not for you. Prayer is not about you. Prayer is about God. And so even we realize that there are ways that this world of consumer in the self, this trinity of our wants and our needs and our desires, somehow it keeps finding its way back into the center of things. So I want us to just kind of talk about a little bit of a pathway forward. I mean, how do we begin to live into the world where Christ is the center when we're part of this larger world that constantly wants to make us the center of all things. When I think about that, I think about transformative practices. What, what are the practices that were we to do them over and over again, they would help form us into a certain kind of a person? I mean, Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, spoke of those who hear the words of mine and act on them. Jesus is not just wanting us to think in new ways or to experience new things. He is wanting us to begin doing new things because sometimes in the act of doing is where we are changed and transformed. So we're going to begin with our two guiding questions. What are the key traits a follower of Jesus needs to develop? I would say things like self-control, a person who is content, a person who is willing to sacrifice for others. And then what kinds of practices will form me into the person that God wants me to be? There's this uh, relatively old guy. I mean, he's dead, but he was old from a long time ago. And here's what he said. He said, do something every day or two. For no reason other than its difficulty, so that when the hour of dire need draws nigh, it may find you not unnerved and untrained to stand the test. What William James is saying is this, how will we be able to pick up our cross if we can't even endure a song service where we don't like the songs that were selected? How will we pick up our cross and follow him when we say, oh, I just can't be in the room with that person because they rub me the wrong way? How are we going to pick up our cross if we always do exactly what we want to do? And we always have exactly what we have. If we cannot be successful in the small things, what makes us believe that we will be successful in big things? There's a Christian writer, and I tried to track down who it was, and I can't remember, so some guy. Um, and he suggested each week going through this process, and I find it a helpful process. As you, as you sit down and you plan out your week, he, he encourages us to ask and answer two questions. The first is this, how can I serve someone this week? Begin your week with some intentionality that there's a person out there. Who are they? What's their situation and what's their need? And what can I do? So this week, I'm going to help X person by doing Y. And you begin your week by realizing what makes this week successful is not just if I get everything I want, 
But if I have an opportunity to serve someone? The second question is very similar to it uh, that he suggests is, how can I surprise someone? And, and how he differentiates these two things is by saying, sometimes it's good to do some, some big thing, some, some really significant thing for people. And, and as you look at your week, you say, man, I don't got a lot of time to do so many significant things for so many people, so I'm going to do significant things for no one. And he says, what if this week, you just said, what would be the coolest thing that person could experience this week? And what could I do? It might take me some time. It might take me a little bit of money. It might take some energy and effort. But what's something that I could just surprise them with God's graciousness and God's generosity? And of course, what all these things are doing is they are intentionally taking us out of the center and intentionally replacing that with the concern and regard for others. I want to finish this morning by sharing a story of someone who I, I think is learning this lesson and how he's putting things together. His name's Bob Goff. Um, Bob is a, a, a lawyer, a professor, a best-selling author, uh, a speaker, and he's a Christian. And he tells a story about going to Orlando for a conference. He was invited to speak there, and so the organizers of the conference had arranged for him to have a limo pick him up. And so limo driver's there, and he, he meets the limo driver, and he can tell that the limo driver's trying to figure out, like, what makes you so special that a limo's going to pick you up? And he just kept saying, I'm just Bob. I'm just Bob. Anyways, he's a really social, outgoing guy, and so, so he makes sure that the, the window is down so he has a conversation with the driver, and they're talking along the way, and the driver says, I'm retiring next month. And Bob said he leaned forward in the window, and he said, hey, have you ever gotten to drive in the back of one of these things? And, and the driver said, no, no, I, they would fire me if I ever got in the back of the limo. And he says, hey, you're retiring in a month anyways. Why would it matter if they fire you now? He said, pull over. And so the driver pulled over and Bob took his hat and he got in the front seat and drove and the driver got in the back seat. And he drove the rest of the way. He drove his driver to the conference center. That's the kind of a person who does not believe I have to be at the center of everything. I mean, think about what it takes to think about what would it be like to be someone else? And what would it take for me to serve them? I think that as I read the gospel story about Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded constantly, we are called to push the self out of the center and to allow Christ to fill that space. And so as we go into this week, I pray that we will be a kind of a people who look outside, who look up, and then we vacate that space that the world wants us to say, oh, you need to stay there. That we vacate that space so that we can love and serve others. Maybe this week we could let someone sit at the front and we can take the seat in the back. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And just remember, as we head into a world, a world that is calling us to act in so many ways contrary to the gospel, we need to remember that we don't go on our own power or on our own accord. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go with the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. Um, I'll be back in the back. Um, I guess, Mike, you're the only elder. Mike's going to be back there. If you want somebody to pray with you, want somebody to talk about where your life is at, we invite you to come back there while together we stand and sing this next song.